Welcome to Voices of E-Learning, reflecting the people living and breathing the future of education and online learning with your host, J.W. Marshall. Hello and welcome everyone to today's podcast. We are very excited to have you online with us. My name is J.W. Marshall. I'm Learn Solutions Director for MarketScale, and we are very excited to have Dr. Arthur M. Langer with us today. He is the Chairman and Founder of Workforce Opportunity Services, uh, as well as Professor at Columbia University. And uh, thank you again for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, if we could get started here, uh, just introduce yourself a little bit further and uh, talk about some of the things that you're currently working on. Yeah, um, uh, as you uh, stated, I am a professor of practice at Columbia University. I uh, wear a number of hats and on a number of faculties, but I direct our Center of Technology Management at the university level. I run an executive master's of science program in technology management and uh, have an appointment at uh, our school of education known as Teachers College in the uh, in the area of organization and leadership and uh, org psych and so where a lot of my research goes on and much of my work at Columbia is the effect of technology on organizations and civilizations and businesses and uh, uh, the grassroots program is a charity that I founded in 2005 2005 Cool Workforce Opportunity Service, which uh, helps underserved uh, populations around the world uh, get assimilated into the workplace. That's great. Um, and so I think the burning question to start off with uh, is what kind of impact have you seen, if you can discuss this in a few minutes, um, on digital technology management? Well, uh, I think, you know, and without getting too deeply into COVID at this point, um, what's been exposed uh, is that everything, you know, all roads don't lead to Rome anymore. They lead to digital technologies. And it is the, um, uh, you know, the, the variable leading this revolution and bringing it into a whole other level uh, because all firms need to be digital, so to speak. And certainly we see on NASDAQ how the digital firms are doing well and so many of the brick and mortar, not all of them, but many of them are, are struggling at this uh, particular point because technology is the most powerful variable of competitive advantage today. And so what would you say as a follow-up question, what would you say to those companies that uh, have been resistant to technology uh, prior to the pandemic and are now finding themselves in a position where... A mess. Yeah, they're in a mess. I think what uh, there are two pieces to think about um, uh, when I talk about this topic around the world. One of them is shame, shame, shame. Uh, many companies have realized that the amount of money that they have invested as a percentage of gross revenues on technologies has fallen far too short. So, uh, and another way of looking at this, you know, in this country where we always talk about infrastructure spending, and in many ways, digital technologies is an infrastructure issue. And what's happened is they've just underspent and underinvested in it. Um, and uh, they've been exposed now with COVID uh, and other areas uh, as we become a global uh, world run by digital you know, technologies. Uh, and I would say to you, the famous um, financial district word or private equity word is grow or go. Um, and um, I think you're going to have to find the money. 
one way or another to start spending lots of money as a percentage of gross revenue um, on technology. Uh, and that's, that's the, the learning lesson. And we're seeing companies like Toys R Us and, and GE Digital, all of them uh, actually ran out of money or ran out of a culture transformation and have uh, had to go, you know, certainly Toys R Us and recently uh, Brooks Brothers, they've had to go to Chapter 11. It's tough. Um, it seems like digital technologies affects every aspect of our life. What are some of the areas that are maybe less obvious um, that digital technologies is, is having an impact on our everyday lives? Well, I think that uh, one of the things that we should have learned from Microsoft when it became a major player was that Bill Gates had figured out that technology was not just happening in organizations, it was happening at home. And he saw the world of people having personal computers at home, which would also somehow integrate with their work life. And that's what we're, we're seeing another wave of this with digital technologies um, really coming from the power of, of a smartphone. And uh, my predictions on a recent book that I just came out on is, you know, 5G is 100 times faster than 4G. And the incredible capacities that are going to be in a simple iPhone are going to be unimaginable as we go into the next wave of technology advancements. And uh, this will not just affect business, it's the integration ultimately of work and private life all coming together. And firms that uh, are incapable of integrating those two are not going to be successful. Wow. And, and would you envision that this 5G wave will also help those that have been traditionally underserved catch up much faster? Well, you know, I always make this as a joke, but it's no joke. Uh, the one thing we've discovered is that the poorest people in the world have smartphones. I mean, did you ever watch TV and you see things happening in Syria or Africa and people are taking pictures of it? So the amazing thing about the smartphone is that everybody somehow gets, gets one, which means that you can reach all aspects of the world and, you know, there's a, a, an interesting presentation I make at Columbia is it took 38 years to reach 50 million people with the radio. You know what the current record holder is? Pokemon Go, 19 days. Pokemon Go. So I can reach 50 million people in 19 days. Think about what that means. Think about what it means. And, 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 and what's happening is our markets are exploding. And they're so large that even what would might have been a small segment, when you look at it globally, it's a large segment. So, um, you know, the amount of data that we will be collecting as 5G promotes this world of Internet of Things is so massive. And there's so many companies right now figuring out how to survive. And, and they don't even realize right behind it what is coming and uh, will dramatically, dramatically change the world. Wow, and, and I know in education specifically, uh, in America we think the entire world is connected, but it's really not yet. Now maybe through smartphones that's growing very quickly, but uh, remote learning, distance learning, digital educations, uh, we've really just scratched the surface worldwide, but again, given the 
pandemic situation, it, it seems like the world is getting even faster in that connection. Um, can you talk a little bit internationally about where the world stands as a whole? Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, higher education, for as an example, is learning a hard lesson that they are one of the major industries being disrupted. And one of the things that I've always told everybody is that whoever is in control of an institution, and this happened to IBM in the mainframe days, they will do everything unconsciously uh, to keep it from changing. And I say that unconsciously because they make meaning of everything in the world through the old ways of doing things. So when you look at most automation in higher education, it's nothing more than an automated classroom. Think about it. Everybody, Zoom and all these other things are nothing more than automating what is, as opposed to looking at how people may learn differently in the future. And I think that that's what you're seeing globally, is that uh, right now markets are being spread out across many different places of the world. And um, uh, abilities to reach so many people so easily is changing the commerce of the way the world occurs. And, you know, the uh, glory days of higher education are going to dramatically change. I mean, there's 4,600 institutions of higher education in the United States. Do you think we need 4,600 institutions of higher education now, given what's going on with technology and online learning and alternative means of reaching people? So I think you're going to see a change. And because you can reach 50 million people in 19 days, what's happening is the change pace is so great that um, acceleration of change is beyond comprehension. And there's never been an article written that says organizations love change or people love change. And yet you're in a change-ready situation in the world. And where the digital companies have done so well using younger workers, the Gen Ys or the digital, you know, the digital-ready uh, community, as we call them, or the, you know, the born digital people, as we say, um, it's changing the way businesses operate completely across the world. I'll just give you an example. I was brought up in a world where the, it, to be successful, be vertical, meaning grow your business vertically upward within the industry you're in. Look what Amazon is doing today. What business is Amazon in? The answer is whatever they want. And what we're seeing in the digital revolution is that the whole rule of how to be successful is gone from be a vertical-based business where you grow within your own world to a horizontal one, where you grow horizontally into many different places. That is a complete, absolute change in the fundamental way people see how you're successful in business. Because they used to criticize you for being into too many things at once. But everything's being controlled by a changing consumer who is digitally capable. Even the poorest people in the world are now becoming interesting consumers. And because you have so much supply in a global world, is that the more supply you have, the cheaper things get. So everybody's working on large populations with low margins. And organizations that can't do that get into trouble. Remember, IBM was selling its operating system to corporations for $1,200. Along comes Microsoft and sells, you know, uh, MS-DOS for 60 bucks. I mean, it's a replication of what happened in those days. But the market was so large that he could make a lot of money at 60 bucks a click. 
And that's what's happening with Internet of Things and everything else. Well, and it seems like it comes back to scalability. Absolutely. If you can, that's why universities are getting so large. I don't know if you've noticed it. You know, you look at Arizona State, 90,000 students. Columbia used to be um, 15,000 students, 18,000 students. We're now over 30,000. Because in order to be successful, within whatever range you're in, Ivy or otherwise, you have to become larger. Because inevitably, the result of COVID-19 and everything that's going on with technology is the cost of education will, within a supply-demand mechanism, start to go down. And to that point, I think you are seeing uh, some of the schools that are smaller and maybe a little more exclusive. 20 have already gone out of business. Going out of business or pushing through to say, let's not make this exclusive any longer and we can reach the masses with these, uh, you or, know, these programs. Or the rule of economics simply says, and I predict this also, M&A activity. So you're going to have institutions and companies merge or acquire because they may not have the tremendous amounts of money that they're going to need to rebuild their infrastructures uh, because the information highway is completely changing because Internet of Things will create an abundance of data. And, you know, they used to say he or she who has the money has the power. No, it's he or she who has the data that has the power. Look at Facebook. It's all about the data. Absolutely. And so do you envision uh, there will be less institutions, but they'll be larger? Do you think those will in some way specify into subjects, trades, that type of thing? Or do you think they will be more horizontal? Uh, I think there'll be more horizontals. I think there'll be new up-and-coming businesses that will not have the problems that the old ones are having. I think there'll be M&A. I think there'll be, I mean, Toys R Us is supposed to come back. I think that you will see a completely different toy store than what you see today. I think Brooks Brothers uh, did Chapter 11 to get rid of its inventory, but they'll be back. So you'll see uh, combinations of that. And I, I also, my prediction is that this may be the era of private equity like we've never seen. Because even companies like GE have needed to get money from, from private um, investments. So companies that have a long-term strategy will need a partner to help them get there. Um, and uh, we owe some of this to Amazon, right? Where Bezos says, leave me alone with tomorrow's stock price. All right, I'm going to capture the market. All right, I'm going to lose money and not really lose money. I'm just going to reinvest it. And stop choking, you know, the throat every two minutes for tomorrow's stock price. And I think that a lot of those companies have suffered because of that. And we're going from a just-in-time world to a just-in-case world. Look at the hospitals that, look, they may have been overwhelmed anyway, but they didn't have enough inventory around. And we've lived in this just-in-time world where we make products on demand right away and what we're discovering is you need to have some levels of capability to deal with the peaks and valleys of the economic world today and you know everyone's predicting that corona is just you know the COVID is just one of the future problems that we're going to have 
So I think you're seeing a reimagining of, of, of what the returns on investments really need to be and the cost of, of being competitive with technology. If you look at what the banks are spending on technology each year, if you look at what Amazon and others, Salesforce and others are spending in technology as compared to the uh, traditional firms, it's breathtaking what the differences are. Wow. And, and I think Bezos said it best, uh, you know, he's always takes the 10 year view. Um, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, you know, those guys were very much looking at that. Yeah, I'm hoping for the better. That this is the case because I think that um, there's been some real downsides to the to being a public company. And you also brought up Gen Y, and and I feel like Gen Y may be the first generation that actually does embrace and thrive on change. Um, better, right? certainly better, better. And don't forget, this fall the Gen Z show up at Columbia, so right. we have some statistics on them and. Um, uh, one of the encouraging factors that we think about Gen Zs is that they've learned from the Gen Ys about giving away information so easily. Um, so they're more conscious about that, uh, but um, uh, you know they're very conscious about brands, and uh, uh, they certainly have a relationship to the greater good of life, um, and all of those things I think are for the positive. But consumers are clearly in control right now. They, you know, every B to B eventually goes to a C, right? And that C is driving that B crazy because they're so smart. They know technology. They know how to how to move around, and they're not as loyal. Absolutely, and then we're even seeing that uh, work its way up uh, through Disney, through some others, uh, through the boycotting of Facebook. Right? That's coming from their consumers. Uh, that's not just something that. Uh, the B2B businesses, you know, are, are pushing for. Every B eventually goes to a C. It's exactly. the, every road, every road leads to Rome. And that consumer is very, very intelligent and very savvy in the use of technology, digital technologies. Absolutely. And now more than ever, um, I want to shift gears a little bit, um, to, uh, micro credentials. Um, and what is the, is that going to be a growing trend over the next uh, years, or is that going to bridge a gap until some of this other infrastructure uh, kind of works itself out? Well, I think what we're challenging now was, you know, digital technology is the ultimate killer of what I've always coined asset specificity, which means I'm an Ivy League school and I'm in a certain location and I have assets and therefore I can protect those assets. And what we're learning is that nothing is safe in a technological you know, driven world. And honestly, higher education has been a very protected society for a very long time. Um, it has, uh, its, its expensiveness has grown miraculously. Its capacities to keep up with what's going on in, in the real world has not exactly been enthusiastic, uh, particularly at the undergraduate levels. So industry complains often that this, the product that they're getting is not necessarily what they're looking for. And what's happened in a global world is that there's an increasing need for skilled labor. That, that has to happen. That's exactly what happened in the Industrial Revolution. The difference is, is that it's happening much faster because I can reach 50 million people in 19 days. There's a shrinking S-curve, as you might call it. So what's happening is you know, the old story of the MBA where I train somebody that's now ready to go into a training program to become a senior leader. We ain't got time for that anymore. 
right? We want people to come uh, ready. And what's frustrating is even when we come out of COVID-19, we still have a skill shortage. This is the amazing thing. And, and it's crazy skill shortages. For example, before COVID-19, I think there were 40,000 open positions in Dallas for, for carpenters and builders, which are all using technology today, all right? So what we have is uh, we have a challenged um, group of uh, colleges and universities that are teaching fundamentally things that are important, don't get me wrong, but may not be answering the demand for skilled labor. So when that happens, what do we do? We begin to look for alternative sources. And certainly one of the ones that I found uh, 15 years ago, 18 years ago, um, was really uh, hidden talent that exists in our, in our uh, underserved neighborhoods. And the question now becomes is, do you really need that college degree or do you need more stackable credentials? And is the... Um, uh, the life cycle that we've sold to uh, the world, which means you, you come out of high school, you go away to four years of college, you come out, you, you, you build the furniture and discipline of your mind. I get it. That's important. I believe in it. But for many, many Americans, that's not in, that's not in the books anymore. Uh, you know, we sold the spending whatever we needed um, uh, to get that education. And now I'm finding underserved kids coming out of college that can't get a job because they don't have the necessary skills. So we, we're beginning to, you know, markets always adjust. And we're beginning to say we need a new supply chain of how we find talent, how we employ it, and how we cater to a, a different generations. I mean, Gen Ys will move into management positions far faster than their predecessors who lived in a hierarchical world and you waited your turn. Millennials don't want to wait their turn. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and I think the statistics vary on which reports you look at, but something like 75% of employers don't feel like the college graduates have the real tools that they need to succeed right. in the workplace. Right. Right. And, right. And, and to some degree, yeah. I think that's tough because the universities can't teach all possible skills, right? I think a big part of that is they need to be at all levels of education teaching learners how to learn and how to learn for themselves and evolve. That's certainly part of it. The question becomes under what condition which comes first. Now, we've sold the world that first you get all of that and then you, you become specific and you get advanced degrees and you become focused and all that other stuff. And I think that works for some percentage of the world. But it doesn't work for a higher percentage of the world that can't afford that education, has incredible needs to earn a salary right away, and perhaps they have to do it on a different supply chain, part-time, going to work, building those two together. It all comes back at some end point later on. It, the question becomes how you get there. And there's not enough choices of how to get there today because it's become too expensive. And that's why we're seeing this overloading of institutions um, that are all pretty, ex pretty much expensive, even though we have a public sector. And uh, you know, without government intervention, uh, that becomes difficult to to continue, but more importantly, with the use of technologies, we may just indeed have too many colleges and universities. We may not need that many anymore. And I think you'll see a shrinking in the number of competitive institutions around the world. Now, the public sector changes that competitive nature, 
but even that is, you know, even even public universities, flagship public universities in each state, they're becoming expensive too. Yeah, the rates have gone up exponentially in recent years. What are your feelings on uh, the the outside world coming in, uh, the Udemy's and Coursera's? Um, is there a, a path there where any you know student population, underserved or otherwise, may may begin to move through that path uh, because they can work it at their own time schedule and it's much more affordable? Yeah. Well, my expectation, what will inevitably happen is that the universities will use them. So I know that we have relationships with Coursera in the university. Uh, Zoom was not an invention of higher education. So I think you will find that there will be these suppliers of the technology and, you know, universities are not software development companies. All right. And so, um, but I, I do believe that degrees and other things will inevitably come from a, a source of a higher education. It'll just be very different. And we may even eventually get into the world of free agency, like baseball, where we have faculty who uh, may not need tenure. Um, they may not want to belong to just one university. They may want to have an agent to represent them and be able to, um, uh, you know, uh, brand themselves. And, and, you know, then you have two types here, you know, in my world, we're a research one university, and that's a whole other piece of the pie. And very often, it's, it's a piece that the general population doesn't recognize the informal learning and teaching at the graduate levels that go on with Nobel Prize winners and other and labs and other kinds of things. So, um, but they have to become more agile. That, that is the, the bottom line. And, um, uh, you know, its, uh, it's S-curve is, is, is running out uh, and, and has a need for some new models driven by more technology and face-to-face. -face. Um, and I believe that uh, this is what go you're going to see happen. Now, there may be elite universities like Columbia University that maintain themselves for, for the obvious and you know, reasons. But we're talking about many, many other institutions that have to become more of an Amazon type of company in which um, I call it the Burger King effect, right? Burger King coined it perfectly, have it your way. And uh, I think what, what this generation will be known for, or this uh, revolution will be known for, is more of the consumer revolution of a Burger King concept of I want it my way and when I want it. And we're seeing companies that can't close. I always lecture on this subject. You know, if you're a company that has the nerve to close, I mean, Amazon is, is, is a store that never closes, right? Even on Christmas Day. So choice, all right, is the name of the game right now. How much choice do you offer? And don't you dare ever close. Don't you dare. Because if you do, that's bad. Now, there's regulations on things, yes, but even banks have to stay open 24-7, 365, right? Through online banking, I should be able, and when I see a company that says our support line runs from 9 to 5, I don't want to do business with that company because I don't do business 9 to 5. I want to do business when I want to do business in a global world. Well, and I think that's where we're finding our, 
our universities and our institutions have not traditionally, you know, they've been that's right, not nine to five, that's but right. maybe eight to eight. Um, and, and now they're finding themselves not only as a necessity to serve online, but to open that up to 24-7 online learning. Yeah, absolutely. And what you're seeing is where I started this conversation, right? Remember I said you have a merging of the personal and corporate life together, all right? And honestly, I'm working all the time, and I'm at home a lot of the time. It's part of my life, all right? And it, it has very little to do. So just for example, tomorrow night, I'm doing a webinar for a group of a company in India. You know when it starts? 10.30 at night. I've also done others where I've gotten up at 5.30 in the morning. All right? It's just that kind of a global world. And um, so uh, this notion, and then you have gig economy issues here, right? Where people are working different shifts and at different times. And so, um, and all of this change is happening so quickly that this is what happens with people that cannot deal with change. How do you create a change-ready organization? Now, we have fancy words, but we call it agile. And, you know, I have a theory called responsive organizational dynamism. It sounds really good as a professor. But basically, this era will be known of an accelerated change. It's very similar to the Industrial Revolution with one difference. It's happening so much faster. So we're overwhelming many people who just traditionally see the, see the glass as half empty as opposed to half full. Most people live that way. That's so true. And, and, and it seems like at the, the core of this transition is going to be online learning uh, in some capacity. Or what I would call, um, I think, uh, the hybrid thing. I, uh, you know, I, I, um, either ors, I'm not sure. You know, I'll just give an example. Many years ago, I won't mention the bank. I was called into a major bank on the end of branch banks. Uh, the forecast 20 years ago is that, you know, the old people would die, online banking would continue to grow, and if you wanted as a career to be a branch manager, that wasn't real smart. And here we are 20 some odd years later, and everything we saw with online banks has come true, and they're opening more branches than ever before. Now, why is that? All right? It's because the assumption that branches were going to stay the same was not true. There were more things that banks do. And then there's an issue that I don't ultimately know the answer to, but I think we are just social creatures. And we see people now, everybody's saying, everybody's going to be working from home and you won't need office space anymore. I don't believe it for a minute. It will change. But I think you will see that people will uh, still want to, to go back. And, and another thing, we have over 20 libraries at Columbia University. I am the co-chair of the Library Committee of the Senate. I've been at this for a long time, and you would sit there and, and your tongue would hang out and say, gee, those 20 plus libraries, we can close them down and, and make them into classrooms. Guess what? They're packed. Now, what the hell's going on in these places? Well, you know, it's study space, it's social venues, right? <laughs> there are all kinds of coffee, fancy coffee places in every one of these libraries. And you just go over there and try to touch one of those libraries, and they'll, they'll come after you. So be careful with this either or stuff. 
The answer always is yes. It just gets more complicated. So I think there's going to be people that are going to want to be face-to-face, -face, and there are people that are going to want it online, and they're going to want it both. And institutions are going to have to get more creative. They're going to have to get larger because they're not going to, people are not necessarily going to be willing to, to pay for that at the same rate. Um, and you have to provide choice, 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 choice. Look, how many people pay more money to get on a shorter line on an airplane? How many people will pay more money to get their luggage on the plane? How many people are spending more money to get on a shorter line at Disney? Right? Amazon Prime is the example. Right? I can get a delivery on Christmas Day. And will I pay for it? You bet. But it doesn't matter if I want it. The question is, can you help me? And when you have a global world, you have people with multiple complexities of need. All right? And are you going to just cater to one of them? In the vertical concept, or are you going to try to broaden that? And what we're seeing is the successful companies are broadening it horizontally. Right? So don't you dare close, and you better start looking for other places to get talent, because you're not going to be able to fulfill the talent you need. And in my case, we're having incredible success finding them in our backyards. I'm finding hidden talent like you would. And maybe they'll get a college degree in seven years, and they'll work, and they'll be able to provide for their families, and they'll become better citizens. But to send them away into college on some, you know, and they're going to take out all these loans, which they'll never be able to pay back. That's the next thing that's coming. All right? And then they get out, and they still can't find a job. Uh, it's not the answer. Um, so I think you're seeing, you see it all over, right? Future of work, I'm involved with. Uh, we're now calling it talent acquisition. People are challenging the, you know, the HR communities right now who have become more regulatory than they are in terms of finding talent. Um, and that's what workforce does, basically. I mean, we're talent finders. And I tell people, you don't want to do what I do. I mean, I go out there and I find it, nurture it, bring it along. And you know what the result is? 90% retention. Think about what's going on in the world today where when people have the talent, they can't retain it. So the whole supply chain is far more complicated. And you could look at this and be excited about it, or you can look at it and get depressed. Um, uh, but I think what you see in the digital companies is there's an excitement in it. And what enters into the whole thing is risk. You know, one of the big programs we have at Columbia right now is enterprise risk management. Everybody's trying to figure out what batting average they should have, you know. And in technology, we were brought up to, you know, bat a thousand. You know, every project should come in on time, on budget. And that's just not the way the world is. You have to sense an opportunity and respond to it. We were, you were probably, and I were both brought up, and you plan and plan and plan. There ain't no planning anymore. How do you plan? Did you know where we were going to be today, three years ago? Do you know where we're going to be next year? And you can see people freaking out over it. And the reality is to be agile is to sense an opportunity and respond to it. As opposed to try to have a three-year budget. Yeah, good luck. Good luck with your three-year budget. It's worth nothing. All right? So that's, that's a big shift uh, in the world. Yeah, and then that brings up a good point. We've had a lot of recent podcasts with manufacturers. 
and the role of technology in really revolutionizing a lot of what they're doing in robotics. And uh, it's interesting, oh, yeah. the half full or half empty glass, a lot of the folks that we're talking to, leadership teams, are saying, we're not looking to replace our entire workforce. We're looking to add to it to upskill our workers so that they can maintain these robots, these technology platforms. And we can actually, instead of doing the same amount of work and saving money by having robots versus people, we're going to do 50 times the work with the same people or more people. And we're going to be the number one in our industry. And I think that's the the shift in mindset that we're excited about um, as leveraging that technology for, for good and for growth and not, uh, the opposite. Totally agree. And let me just tell you something. There is no historical evidence that any revolution, and they say this is the fourth revolution, whatever it may be, no revolution has ever created unemployment. What it's done is it's changed the employment rates, right? So from working on a farm in the Industrial Revolution, I then went to the factories. Okay? And that's that with that shift. But the difference is the digital revolution is accelerating. That's the difference. Now, the S-curve is shrinking. And so you have less time to enjoy any success that you have. And when you fail, you fail big. Remember this. This is the golden rule. Nokia loses 75% of its market share in six months because it doesn't like smartphone. So you can't bat a 1,000. You know, in baseball, we know if you get a hit one out of every three times, you go to the whole thing. So what I, what I talk about with industries and leaders and executives and board members is I ask them what they're batting or, or do you actually think you're going to get a hit every time you get up to the plate? Because if you do that, you'll be too conservative, and you're not investing enough money. This fall, there'll be new TV shows coming on, right? Are all of them going to make it? Does anybody at CBS, ABC, NBC, or Fox think that they're all going to make it? I'll bet you they know how many better make it. But you have to, even private equity, right? How many? What's the percentage of successful investments in private equity? I mean, most of them, some people tell me 80% of their investments never really return very much at all. But when they hit a big one, it makes a difference. So risk as a fundamental concept of a reactionary world is different. And you have to take more risks. You have to fail fast. Um, and you have to sense what's going to happen and respond to it. You certainly can't plan for it. That's my wisdom. That's the way I'm working. And you have to constantly look at the S-curve and say, when are we at the end of it? It's like bringing a car in after it's off lease and just getting a new one. You have to retire systems before they're no longer useful to you. You got to ride the wave and know when to get off. And by the way, you won't bat a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> you won't. And, and you those, show, those showrunners and show creators, they're going to learn from the failed pilots and the failed mistakes, and they're going to make better shows, and they're going to come back. It's part of and, life. Ex- exactly. Exactly, exactly. And they're going to want people that, that enjoy that kind of life. Uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, going to hit a home run every time I get up. There you go. Our last question. I was recently watching uh, Paul Krugman's uh, economics class on Masterclass. Uh, and he talked about how you never really know the impact of something uh, that will have in the future, just like you're talking about. And he used the example of uh, the study of quantum physics back in the 20s, uh, how they never could have known that that would lead to the Internet today and to technology. Is there anything out there like that being studied that's maybe not on 
our radar at the uh, university level, the academic research level that, that you think could have a big impact in the future? Well, there's a, there's a bunch of people, and by the way, I'm really scared when I wake up in the morning because I finally do understand quantum, and that makes me nervous because uh, a lot of people say once you understand quantum, you've lost your mind. So I may have lost my mind, but I really, truly understand it. I happen to be on board with it. There are many people that are not. What everybody agrees to is that it is the end of silicon as we know it. So there needs to be something new. And you saw Apple invest in its own chips because the Internet of Things, the amount of data is going to be so overwhelming. And it's not just going to be formatted data. You know, It's going to be everything, every movement. It's 1984. And the question is, you'll do a search on something and you'll get 25 million hits. You're going to need intelligent machine learning. Um, you're going to need a new type of processing and cybersecurity issues. I think we'll get there. Uh, but there is a danger, and it's in my newest book, uh, The Next Generation Analysis and Design, which uh, just got published in 2020, where I, I warn the world that the Internet really is the story of Frankenstein. Now, what's the story of Frankenstein? Great scientist, right? And he has this great idea that he wants to create this immortal person they make a little mistake with the brain and they create a monster. And not only do they create this monster, but for the last 50 or 60 or 70 years of <laughs> 70 years of Frankenstein, you can't kill him. You know? Well, that's exactly what's happened with the internet. Right? We created this thing, this information highway. It made a lot of sense, but we didn't realize we created Frankenstein. And what we're seeing in the internet is the dark side of it. Right? And now, with the Internet of Things and quantum computing and the explosion of data, we have to make a decision whether or not we're going to create Frankenstein 2.0 or we're going to get some control over this thing or it's going to get out of control. And you just can't have a free ruling. You see what it's doing to society right now. I mean, at the end of the day, Twitter and all of the things you may want to call it, it's all was Frankenstein's creation that was built by the military without understanding what the issues would be if the wrong brain got in the monster. And you can't just leave it open like this. Somebody's got to get control over this thing or you're going to have much of the anarchy that's going on today. So there's the good part, but there's this huge danger to what's happening right now. And, uh, you know, uh, I believe that space is going to make a huge difference. You know, the final frontier. We knew the railroads didn't see the airplanes, and the airplanes. Some of the airplane people are seeing space. I think uh, labor is not the issue. I think it's the social fabric of our society brought on by this this monster we kind of created that has a lot of good stuff, but also has this you know this evil part of it that's killing us. I mean, you know, I, I spent a lot of time with the military and I said, you created a new, a, 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 a new enemy that doesn't need tanks, doesn't need airplanes, doesn't need boats, that just goes through the internet. All right? And uh, how are you going to deal with this? You know, there's still no defense against a, 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 an attack by drones. Do you know that? Think about that. And all of that is possible only through the internet. At the end of the day, wireless, Internet, Internet of Things. We, there, there's a great part of this, but we've got to get control over the Frankenstein, or he's going to 
or Godzilla or whatever you want to call it, man. <laughs> I mean, they just won't die. So somebody's got to get control in terms of how we manage it. And we're struggling with this right now because it's sort of like Pandora's box. Anyway, just an opinion, right? Absolutely. And, and that's a great uh, plug for some of our other podcasts. We do a lot on drones. Uh, we recently had NASA and the FAA on uh, with us doing a podcast. Oh, yeah. I, I do a lot of work with West Point and the military, Air Force. I mean, this is, and I, you know, I kind of scold them about this. You know, that's what happens when you're not sensing and responding. You're building more ships and you need to. But that is a new enemy. Right? And that animated, I don't know what you're going to do with your tanks or your, or your airplanes and everything. I mean, they're useful right there. But down the road, what did the Russians figure out? Right? They figured out a new highway, a new, a new war. And you got caught. Because you probably didn't invest enough money as a percentage of your revenues in R&D. You didn't sense and respond. It all seems so obvious today when you look back, right? Monday morning quarterback. But that's what my notebook, and I talk about quantum in the notebook, and I believe in it. But there are those that don't think it's quantum, it's something else. But, you know, when the market wants something, it tends to get it. And there you have it. We're out of time. Uh, we're going to have to have another session to uh, continue this, but I want to thank you again, Dr. Langer, Columbia University, Workforce Opportunity Services. Um, if you want to learn more, uh, click on the links in the blog around this podcast posting, and uh, we'll see you next time.